0: Hey folks, Sam Jones here. You might've heard me talk about Shady Rays on this show before. And ever since they sent me my first pair, I have been loving these sunglasses and I'm loving the philosophy behind the company because Shady Rays is an independent sunglasses company, meaning they don't overcharge you for sunglasses because truthfully, everyone knows sunglasses are overpriced and it's easy to lose or break sunglasses. So it always feels especially bad to break or lose an expensive pair of sunglasses. And Shady Rays has solved all of that. Let me tell you how they do it. The craziest thing about Shady Rays is the warranty. It's one of the best warranties in all of eyewear. They'll replace your shades if they are lost or broken for any reason. It doesn't matter what happens, whether you drop them in the ocean, run over them with your car, whatever. Try that with your high-priced shades and see if they'll help you. Even with that strong of a warranty, they still manage to make quality that I can tell you, holding in my hand, seems as good as any expensive name brand pair I have ever worn. They have polarized lenses that look perfectly clear, and most shady rays are $48 shady rays also provides 10 meals to fight hunger in america with every order placed and they have provided over 10 million meals to date they stand behind their product and they told our team that if anyone has a problem they'll throw profit out the window and do what it takes to get it right they have free returns and exchanges you either love the sunglasses or shady rays will pay to ship them back that's it so here's the deal Exclusively for our listeners this summer, you can use the code CAMERA for 50% off two or more pairs of shades at ShadyRays.com. You can buy one and get one free, or you can get two pairs of shades for $48. You can redeem this only at ShadyRays.com, where you can find all their newest and best shades. That's the code CAMERA for 50% off two or more pairs at ShadyRays.com. Hey folks, Sam Jones here, and welcome to another edition of Off Camera, the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. And in this episode, I sit down with singer, songwriter, and somewhat reluctant actor Glenn Hansard. One of Glenn Hansard's most cherished memories is sitting in a sink and singing Leonard Cohen songs. He was five at the time. Just as fondly, he recalls staying up late, listening to the adults that gathered at his house to sing, tell stories, and drink. If that didn't give him an idea where his life was headed, it became crystal clear when he left school at age 13 to busk on the streets of Dublin. And his headmaster didn't give him permission. It was more of an order. It was also a prophecy. Glenn went on to front his acclaimed Irish rock band, The Frames. He took an unplanned detour into acting in the 1991 music movie, The Commitments. And though it was a detour he came to regret, he found himself in front of a camera again in 2006. This time, playing a street musician, a role that hit close to home. Hansard's feelings about acting hadn't changed, but he couldn't pass up the chance it gave him to write the movie's score. That small, no-budget film was called Once, and it changed the trajectory of his life. In this episode, Hansard talks about a chaotic, beautiful childhood that most of us can never imagine. He also reveals what forced him to reevaluate his songwriting at the height of a successful solo career. The result, Didn't He Ramble, is one of his most deeply felt albums, and one haunted throughout by the ghost of his father. If you need some tips about selling pianos or firecrackers, we've got that for you too. Not surprisingly, Glenn's one of the best storytellers I've ever come across. So pull up a chair and listen in. Hi, Glenn. Hi, Sam. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. It's really nice to have you here. Um, and, you know, I, I've been a fan of your work for years, and I, I love your voice. There's some punk rock in there. There's some soul in there. There's, there's some of my favorite folk artists in there. I even love your work as an actor as reluctant Thanks. as you may be Thanks very to much. call yourself an actor. <laughs> um, so it's it's great to have you here. And I, you know, I feel like there's two categories of musicians. There's those who have no problem picking up an instrument in any situation and playing and singing and sharing a song.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then there's the other category of people who the circumstances have to be just right, yeah. or oh, it's precious, yeah, you know what I mean? I and I, you're definitely in the former. And do you ever think about that? Do you ever think about... If that's just in your culture or or if that's just the way you've been all your life?
1: I think for me it goes back to being a child and watching my parents and how they would, you know, whether it be Sunday morning when my dad was having a shave or he was just in good mood or whatever point of the hangover he was in, the the, the spiritual aspect arose and he sang in the morning or my mother i remember i remember my mother sitting us i remember being i must have been very young i think it might have been 5 years old because my mother used to bathe us in the kitchen sink and she had her uh fold out record player you know the old classic ones sure. with the and it was up on the side of the thing and she had two records she had Simon Garfunkel's uh sound of silence and Leonard Cohen's i think it might have been Leonard Cohen's greatest hits the yellow cover the yellow cover one and I remember she taught my brother the sound of silence. Hello, darkness, my old friend. And we're sitting there in the bath, and we're just being washed, and, and the record's on beside us. And it's such a very clear memory. It was a bright orange, kind of, you know, sort of leatherette cover on the record player. And uh, I've come to talk with you again. You know, is there the vision softly creeping? And, like, my brother learning this with my mother, you know, and learning. And then for me, she had Bird on a Wire like a bird on a wire like a drunk in a midnight choir and I always loved that lyric like a drunk in a midnight choir because it it reminded me of my dad because my dad was a drinker and I always kind of thought you know as even as a child the image you know in Ireland we always the one day you did go to mass because we weren't a practicing Catholic family but the one day that we all went to mass was midnight on Christmas Eve all the families of my town would gather at the church and of course the men were drunk and you know <laughs> they all stood at the back of the church and the, the mothers and the children all went in and took part but i remember like a drunk in a midnight choir was such a powerful line in my house my dad would bring all of these guys home and especially around christmas actually it was a, it was always a big time in my family there was all these guys that would arrive home my dad and They'd, you know, they'd sit around the living room and they'd all sing and they'd talk and it was about politics and it was about, you know, it was just about friends of theirs and, and they were kind of referred to, they were referred to loosely as my drunkles. <laughs> yeah. which, but they were basically guys that my dad, my dad was very, um, very generous with his friends and so these guys would come home and stay in our couch for a few weeks. So while these guys were around, nightly there'd be gatherings with like you know loads of cups of tea and and bottles of vodka on the table and songs and you know and so it was a wonderful uh, time wonderful time for me as a child to sit and you know when when these men or, or women happened to be in our house which was kind of a halfway house really when I think about it now really at the time when I was a kid we didn't really have to get up and go to school in no the morning because everything was just chaos you know, nothing was really... We were up at 3 o'clock in the morning listening to... And sitting either under the table or, at, you know, away from the table while the adults, you know, the lamp would be down low on the table and everyone would be kind of leaning in and they'd be singing or they'd be talking and life was being discussed. And 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 everything was being discussed in front of us. There was none of this, like, not in front of the children. Everything was be, everything was on wow. the table. and And songs were very much part of that. So the idea for me now of taking out a guitar and singing a song, I kind of feel like it's absolutely part of uh, our culture and it's what I have to offer. I see myself as a musician. I see myself as a, as a person in society and a person who, who, who sings. That's what I do. So in a way, I get the whole thing of the precious, preciousness of the mood being right and the lights and the, you know, and okay, I kind of feel it now, I'll do it. But I also very much get to forget all of the situation to do it in the middle of a crowd which is what busking really was right you know taking your guitar on a train station or taking your guitar on the street and just singing songs and and in a way the song through singing songs you pull in the silence you create the mood and I remember re- my mother sold fruit uh, on the streets in Dublin oh she did yeah and, and I grew up as a, as a kid every Halloween and um, fireworks are illegal in Ireland and so but of course fireworks get sold in Ireland and I was one of the people with my mother who sold fireworks and so there's a kind of a code so I'd be standing still on a street and people walking by and I'd be pretending to sell you know starlights Starlights are the little, with sparklers. Spark yeah. yeah. So I'd be holding a bunch of sparklers, going five for 50, spark, you know, sparklers, but in my jacket and all, rockets and bangers and, you know, all really? over me. How old were you? Oh, eight years old, you know, seven, eight, nine, 10. So your mom was basically having her son <laughs> sell illegal fireworks on yeah, the street. Yeah, and plus <laughs> if anyone had thrown a match at me, I would have gone up like a light. <laughs> um, but we used to travel, my, not only my mother, but my grandmother. That we also had a stall in the street, in Moore Street in Dublin. Uh, we would travel to the north of Ireland. We would travel to England. And we'd always come back with suitcases full of fireworks because you bought the fireworks where it was legal. This was pre-TSA. Exactly, <laughs> exactly, pre-T. T- <laughs> clearly. Uh, and then you got the suitcases of fireworks back to Dublin. You, 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 and then you, but anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm missing my... I'm, oh, yeah, I'm going off the point. People who stand still on a street... You get a sense of everything that's passing you. It, 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 for me, the instinct to busk was, wasn't so far removed from selling the fireworks, in a way.
0: Yeah, well, you know, you said something about that subject that struck me. I read that you said that the most courageous part of busking is actually st- you're walking down the street to actually stop
1: and open your guitar case. That's the hardest part. Exactly, and, and, and you're stopping in the middle of midstream, and it's, a, it's, it's kind of a difficult thing to do. And what I mean about it being difficult, so you're walking along with your guitar and then you stop and you take the guitar off your shoulder and then the hardest part is opening the case because it's an intention, you know. You take it and then you open the case and you put the case in front of you and that's really difficult because when you put the case in front of you, it means please give me you're asking. Now you're a beggar. Yeah. Now you're asking something of the public right. before you play a note. You're opening, you know, you're putting out your arms and you're you're putting out your hands and that's a difficult thing to do when you've got any kind of pride about your work and, you know, uh, but at the same time, when I left school, I knew that I needed to earn money. I needed to, I needed to bring money home to my mother. I couldn't quit school and not be making money. So you quit school. How at 13, old was 13. I was thr- 13. Years I, was 13. Old. I had a really great school teacher, the headmaster, but I was always down in the office, down in the headmaster's office because I, you know, I was frustrating different teachers and, and I had one of these faces that, that w- teachers always thought I was smirking at them. And I really wasn't. (laughs) Whatever whatever defiance... I had this real problem with authority, and so whatever defiance was in my face, it used to drive teachers mad, even though I wasn't against them. I just had a kind of a smirk that would be like, don't... You You were misunderstood your entire childhood. Well, (laughs) I definitely got into a lot of trouble without meaning to. Isn't that funny? Yeah, yeah, I definitely did. But he took an interest in me, and he was asking me what music I was into, and, and this was the area I was really able to hold a conversation because I could, you know, I could keep up with him on recordings and when albums were made. And uh, because I because my 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 uh, intelligence was all being used in one area. And I guess there's a name for that where you put your whole everything you've every resource you've got of mental energy goes on one area. Yeah. And that was at that time you were obsessed. I was obsessed. I was obsessed with Dylan. And, of course, I knew my Neil Young, and I knew my van, and I knew my Leonard, and, I, you know, Pink Floyd and ACDC. And my headmaster basically said, look, Glenn, quit school? Or Well, he just said you're smart, but you're not using it. You know, but I can tell that you're really into music, and what, do you, what would you like to do? And right. I was like, all I want to do is, you know, I want to be Bob Dylan. I mean, that was like, you know, literally probably what I said. I want to be Bob Dylan. You now, of course, you know, he said, well, you can't be Bob Dylan, but, you know, you're, if you, he said if you do, if you follow it, and I can tell you're into it, you'll, uh... and I was one of those kids that I knew immediately, the moment I learned how to play the first chord on the guitar, that was it. There was never a question of will I be a fireman or will I be a mechanic. There wasn't a single other thing in the world that mattered more than playing music. That was it. And I didn't even really have a picture on what that would mean in the real world. And he said to me, he said, look, I'll do a deal with you, you're, 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 you're too young to leave school. You're not meant to leave until you're 15. But I'll do a deal with you. I'll let you off school. You can go home now, you can leave your school bag in the hall. But do me a favor, go out today, this was early in the morning, go onto Grafton Street or go on to Henry Street or Moore Street and start playing music. Just because that's the bottom rung. If you're climbing this ladder, which is a big ladder of playing music and you want to you be like your, you know, the people that you love, go out and play today and he says look, if in six months, it hasn't worked and you're not enjoying it and it's too much for you, I'll get you back into the school. But I'm giving you this opportunity to, to do it. But promise me that you won't just sit around at home. Because he was worried that I'd, you know. Well, yeah, that could go wrong in so many ways yeah. for a kid. I mean, did your folks, did they, did they have an opinion on that? or You know, it, it, it's a funny thing because I went home that they so excited. I was so excited because I knew this was it. I'd just been given my chance to start, Yeah. You know? And when I went home and told my ma, she was like, well, you better talk to your dad. And that was really all she said about it, and, you know, and you better make some money. Now, get out and get a job now. I don't want you, you know, I don't want you sitting around. She had the same attitude. I don't want you sitting around the house. Uh, and my dad came home that night. And, of course, my dad was like, yeah, yeah well, if, you know, what, whatever. You, you, know." And I'd already been out busking all day right. like, when he got right. home that night. And he was like, well, if that's what you want to follow, then you should follow it. My dad was a boxer when he was younger, you know. And he really followed his... Uh, My dad was really into boxing. He was the All-Ireland champ a few times in a row, and he was like, you know, but then he got met my mother, got her pregnant, and and so in a way, I kind of felt like, and quit his career. And I feel in a way, my dad was like, if you want to go after your career, you go after your career. Do it now, go for it. Isn't that amazing though, at age 13? I mean, I can't imagine
0: saying, oh yeah, quit school. It'll work out for you. I guess it was different times. Hey folks, let's take a little break from the conversation so I can tell you about this week's sponsor, Helix Sleep. You know, if you've listened to this show for a while, you know that Helix Sleep has been a sponsor of ours for a number of years. But before they came on as a sponsor, I decided to take their personalized sleep quiz and try out their whole service. And I will tell you that since doing that, I've had the best sleep of my life. I got the mattress shipped to me from Helix Sleep. They have a hundred day, no risk guarantee. I tried all of that, but by the second or third day, I was already feeling the benefits of this mattress. And funny enough, I've always been a guy who thought I should have a firm mattress. But when I took the Helix Sleep Quiz, it recommended a medium mattress. So I thought, okay, I'll try it. And I was a little skeptical, but ever since sleeping on this mattress, I have never had better sleep in my life. And I'm here to tell you that it's a great company They make a great product, and they can help you find the mattress that works best for you. So here's what it's all about. They make personalized mattresses right here in America, and they ship them straight to your door with free no-contact delivery, free returns, and a 100-night sleep trial. To choose a mattress, Helix made this quiz that takes you just two minutes to complete, and it matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. So if you like a mattress that's really soft or really firm, if you sleep on your side or your back or your stomach, or you sleep really hot, with Helix, there's a specific mattress for each and everybody's unique taste. So like I said, I was matched with a medium mattress, and I also got the cool mattress because I tend to get hot, and I'm also a side sleeper. And since then, I've found that I get longer sleep, I dream more, I wake up less, and in general, I'm just more comfortable. And the other benefit for me is that I've had a lot of lower back problems in my life. And since getting this mattress, I don't have that lower back issue that I often had waking up in years past. So I love my mattress, but you don't need to take my word for it. Helix was awarded the number one best overall mattress of 2020 by GQ, Wired Magazine, and Apartment Therapy. So if you want a better night's sleep, go to helixsleep.com offcamera off-camera, take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. And they have a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it. But I'm guessing you will. And here's the best thing. For listeners of our show, Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash off-camera. That's helixsleep.com slash off-camera for up to $200 off your mattress order. Thanks, and now back to the show. Did it ever worry you or bother you, or did you ever have any insecurity about not having higher education throughout your life, or did it ever even... You cross know, your mind. It, it
1: did cross my mind much later when, when I was around people, you know, with real education. It, 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 it occurred to me then, but actually, I think all one needs in this life is curiosity. All one needs is a sponge of a mind. Because I, here I am in school and I'm learning about, you know, geography or I'm learning about poetry. I remember studying Seamus Heaney, digging. I remember it was, on the, it was on the curriculum, this poem, you know, between my finger and my thumb, the squat pen rests, I'll dig with it. You know, this idea of like, my father digs in the garden, but I'll use this. And so I remember going onto Grafton Street and playing, and then getting to know all these people and getting quickly to know and being introduced to books and, you know, reading, uh, you know, John Fante or reading James Joyce reading these books that I never would have touched in school, I never would have gone near. But suddenly playing way, hanging out with people much older than me, who are into poetry. And and I remember hanging out with Catherine Ann, this girl, and she brought us back to her dad's house. And we're sitting up in her dad's study. And it turns out her dad is Seamus Heaney. And and, and for me, (laughs) you know, for me as a young lad, I was like, so here I am in school studying Heaney. Now I'm in the real world. And it's six months later, and I'm hanging out in the man's house so for me it was like a, 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 a kind of a, a validation of like this is where real education is it's out here in the world yeah. with people god if you stay awake and you stay stay alert and you're listening then you're going to learn everything you need to know and so in a way i feel like my education although stunted by me leaving school began when i left school you know what it they say education is everything you remember after you've forgotten everything you learned at school <laughs> you know if there was someone now saying i'm going to leave school and I'd be like, well, you know, you're definitely going to miss out on some things, but you're going to gain so much if you're curious. You talk about Seamus Heaney um, digging with his pen, and
0: and maybe that's a perfect transition to Didn't He Ramble, your latest record, because I think about your lineage and and how you started and then this record, and
1: I wonder how far apart those things are or how close. I think they echo, don't they? They repeat. Like, I think in a way that, uh, for me... The the, the 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 me that wrote these songs is the same me that that wrote my first songs. Except I'm just every time I go back to it, I'm trying to whittle and get you know uh, uh, get to the, get to the sort of the, the 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 truth of it. Songs are amazing things. They just flash. There's a, you're 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 sitting somewhere and, and then it's a line or something you hear or something just goes click, and then you've got a chord and you've got a line. Yeah. And then somehow, sometimes that can sustain you. Sometimes you can get a whole song in that flash, you know, in that sort of like, some what, whatever whatever it's called, the muse lands it on your shoulder. you, and just, there it is. Yeah, you just get this moment of inspiration. And I've, I guess, in a lot of ways, never given too much credit to the perspiration, to the to the then sitting with the idea and going, well, what is it? And so you've got these beautiful ideas and be like, you know what, that song is really beautiful but it's not a perfect song because there's a hole in it there and you can. Just de- it's definitely not watertight. A, you're gonna, If it ever has to hit a storm or ever gets, uh, if it ever gets really looked at and, 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 and observed, it's not going to stand up. And then after a while you start going, okay, well actually if I'm going to continue doing this, I need to deepen. Like Winning Streak, for instance, was called Losing Streak. I remember just going, it's not good enough. It's not good enough to just sit and go, you know... Oh. You know, I was like, you know what, actually, there's a responsibility. I don't know what it is, and I don't know what made me really feel it, but I'm going to say, we have a responsibility here. Maybe it's from playing lots of gigs, I realized that, you know, you actually have to give a little hope. There's got to be something in your song that just reflects. Maybe it's just a place in my life where I'm at where I was like, you know, I need. So this song, you know, May Your Losing Streak, you know, Never End, or whatever it was, it was just some moaning. But Losing Streak is one of those things. That's a title, It's a title, yeah, and that's That's what came to me first. And then I thought, you know what? I'm not digging this song, and I don't know why. And what came with age and what came with a bit of perspective was, why don't I flip that lyric on its head? Let me write that lyric again from the completely opposite perspective.
0: Almost like an exercise.
1: As an exercise. Literally as a kind of an intellectual exercise in songwriting. Turn it into a positive, good-willing song. And then, of course, The moment I did that, I started seeing all these comparisons to Forever Young, the Bob Dylan song, you know, May your heart always be joyful, may your song always be sung, and may you stay, you know, uh, um, True summer's long, winter's cold, may you always have someone good to hold. Yeah. I started seeing this, like, direct line between that song and and Forever Young. Now, not to compare the songs as how they touch people, because that's none of my business, but I was like, oh, my God. I'm not, you know. There's two. There's two reactions. Oh my god, that sounds like Forever Young. Shit, I can't do it. Or oh my god, that sounds like Forever Young. I've just had a breakthrough on a major level because Forever Young is a is an. If you if you if you think about Forever Young as a as a as a piece of furniture, it's the most perfectly crafted. You can. It's like. You will have this piece of furniture. your children will own it, your grandchildren will own it. It's an amazing piece of furniture. That song is so solid. Yeah, that's it's true. It's a perfect song. There's no, there's no, there's no holes in it. There's no, it's not what you know. When you put that, put that through every condition, that song will stand up. And so when you think about the power of someone making a, an incredible, you know, it's like watching movies. There's always that moment where like the guy stands up or the girl stands up and they make this speech, and then suddenly everyone in the cinema is going, you know, I, I, I got, it. and it's poetry. And it's, it, it, it's so simple, and it's just words. And when words are formed correctly, they can have this very intense worldwide impact. You know, I don't think anyone sets out, you know, it's not like I want to write a song that's going to last forever, because that stuff is selfish. That's got nothing to do with what's really... That sounds like ego. Yeah, that's got nothing to do with what's, what's really going on. What, 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 but the idea of writing a song, you know, if one ever does, and I don't know if we'll ever have any choice about this, but of writing something that just lasts, and you don't know that you're doing it. It just happens, you know, you know, uh, it, it, you, you do, you do your best and things, some things live and some things don't. And, and the longevity of something is a lot of it comes down to how well you built it. Yeah, it's, it's almost an oxymoron to call something a simple song, because
0: it, it, if the simple songs is the hardest to write, then they aren't simple at all.
1: In a way, I feel like we all have to drag ourselves out of bed in the morning. Whether you're Bob Dylan, Leonard Cohen, you know Matisse, whoever you're, you, you got to drag yourself out of bed. You got to drag your clothes on. You got to get into your day, and you got to get to work, no matter who you are. So there isn't, you know, I, I've always grown up with this idea that my heroes they just seem to kind of be there, and they were, you know. But the thing is, we're all struggling, and and our only protection against like, life is tough, life is difficult. It's angular and it's cold and it it's, it's, it's hurts you when you... You know, life is hard. And the only protection we have on it is our position to life, our, our attitude to what is... And
0: that's what know. the record... I, I feel like that's the theme of this record, uh, Didn't He Ramble, your, your newest record. Oh. Um, and I feel like, I mean, when you say that... And, you know, I, I read a bit about the process of making this record and yeah, about how yeah. this
1: record was a struggle for you. I'd been touring and... True touring, you come up with ideas and you play the ideas of your band and they sound great. And sometimes you even play them on stage. Sometimes you play a half baked idea on stage in front of a thousand people just to sort of see if it's feeling, you know. There's a kind of a courage to that and a a kind of a letting go that's good. Yeah. And I was playing these songs, soon I was playing out live and other, and I kind of had this batch of, of things I was excited about. And I booked a studio in New York right after a tour. I was kind of enthusiastic in the middle of the tour. Booked the studio, got Brian Blade, amazing drummer, and his band, The Fellowship Band. So Brian Blade and The Fellowship Band show up in a studio in New York and I arrive in and in my mind, I'm gonna play these songs, these guys are gonna play something over them. You know, lightning's gonna happen in a bottle and we're gonna come out of here with, you know, hopefully the bones of a record. Right. Not taking into account that I was utterly, completely exhausted with nothing to offer you know i thought that somehow the energy would and again this is relying on the muse this is where it gets dangerous you cannot ever it the muse makes no appointment with any of us and this was the biggest lesson on this record you cannot count on it so i showed up in this beautiful studio avatar where dylan recorded infidels i mean i remember knowing that when i was in school so here I am, finally in this I remember they gave me a patch lead from the uh, from the patch bay and I still have it in my guitar case because maybe Dylan's vocal went through the you know, <laughs> this classic like, you know, madness. But going into avatar, so here I am. I'm, you know, forty four years old. I'm walking into the studio, this incredible studio has recorded all of these great records, Springsteen records, all of these great records have been done in this room. And here I am with this amazing jazz band. And I've got this amazing engineer, and I've got Thomas Bartlett producing the session. I walk in, and I've got nothing. And I play all these ideas to the lads, and they play them. And they sound amazing. And I've got nothing. And nothing inspires me. And nothing comes into me. I'm not visited from the, I have nothing. And the lads are playing beautifully. And we're getting these great takes of these tiny, half-baked ideas. But they're great takes. They sound amazing. The lads are brilliant. Everyone showed up except me. Everyone was there. And I wasn't there. The muse wasn't there. The, and that was the hardest lesson I've learned in my whole life as did a Did you know it right then, or did someone have to tell you, or did you did you have to have it absorbed? I took some time. I mean, it sounded incredible. The, the session sounded incredible. It's a whole album worth of ideas. And Thomas came to me, and it was an expensive week. I know. bet. It, you know, it was, was a lot of great musicians, you know, and and, and Thomas came to me after and says, it's just not good enough you know it's just you're it's this is they're, they're no good the songs are no they're essentially they're just no good how does that feel really really difficult <laughs> and i kind of hated him you fire him i didn't fire him no <laughs> i didn't fire him but my my friendship with him and i said to him my friendship with you is really on the line you need to think about you know and and i spent of course i spent a few days thinking about it and I thought you know he's absolutely completely spot on and he loves me and that's why he said it you know this is no good and I thought that is friendship that's friendship because when you're you know when you've gone through some successes in your life and people are kind of applauding you and you walk you know on a stage and all of that stuff you get less and less honesty you get less and less of that pure good I'm your friend I'm going to tell you something that's important for you and Thomas told me my record was no good and he was right it was no good it wasn't it didn't it, it just didn't have any legs it had ideas and so, so what I realized was that I needed to write these songs. And I needed to write them without the muse. I needed to, I needed to stop looking. I just needed to stop putting up the aerial and hoping. And I needed to get, get, get in front of a, a desk. And I needed to sit down. And I needed to actually take out a pen and use the front of my brain and actually write these songs. And, and I went and I worked on these songs, and I worked on them, and I, I really took them apart, and I wrote them and I rewrote them. And I, and, I, and I did something I've never done before. I took out, I looked at the song, and I said, what does that song mean? What's at the heart of this song? You know, almost, almost like, pitch me, Glenn, pitch me on that song, what is that song, what is it? It couldn't just be internal, you had to really think. I wanted to make a record that was watertight. That was the only, the only criteria I set. I want to be able to talk about every song and I want to be able to explain every song, in what it meant to me. Can you let
0: yourself go and experiment without self-criticism, or are you constantly sort of
1: judging your work? No, I can. I can pick up a guitar and I can start singing. You can, yeah. And I can sort of allow what falls out of my mouth to fall out of my mouth, because oftentimes that's actually the that's the most important stuff is the blah blah blah. You know, when you pick up a guitar and you're just like. <laughs> That's actually you're tuning into a deeper part of yourself in that way, but that's not enough to sustain a song. It's like take that bit of kind of that just fell out, and then look at it and whittle it and craft it, right? Turn it into a a shape because you know it's a lot of time with songwriting. It's that idea first thought, best thought. That really is oftentimes the case, you know. But it doesn't mean that the song has any life in it. It might just be a You know, what gives the song life is how much it means to you or I. And like I said, the only criteria I gave myself on this album is if I mean it. If I mean it, it's the right lyric. Right, If I I, I don't mean it and it sounds smart, it's not the right lyric. Because, and again, coming from a a non-educated, non-formally educated background, I tend to do what most people do when they pick up a pen. I want to sound fancy. I want to sound smart. I I love the idea of people looking at me and going, yeah, "He's really intelligent," you know. Like, it's got nothing to, do, you know. And then you realize that though, though, you know, I listen to songwriters, you know, that are well known or that are loved, and I just I don't buy it. I just, you, to me, you just sound like you're trying to be smart. To me, it just sounds like intellectual, you know. I don't feel you in that song. I don't. I'm not. Li- right. I don't buy it. I'm not. You know. And then there are some people who might write the simplest lyrics, and you're just like, whatever you're saying. I believe you. Whatever it is you're about, I believe you. I mean, is that one of the things that makes it hard about writing a song, is that, is that you sort of have to face yourself? Well, you have to face your limits, and you have to face, you know, you, you, you find yourself, you know, there are so, like there, for instance, on this record I was like, the word love and the word heart, I'm not using them. I'm not using them unless they're the only word you can use in that instance. Because love and heart are two, imagine like, you know, you're a painter, it's red and it's it's blue right they're like so over like not overused but they're so available and so restricting myself that way really helped i remember um replacing the word heart and love with the word cock as a kind of an exercise (laughs) so every time i found myself singing the word heart or i was like you know um um you know all you need is cock or 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 uh, i love you from the bottom of my cock or step in the name of cock you know whatever whatever (laughs) whatever it is but just my c- cock aches yeah exactly my cock aches for you <laughs> Um so by doing that you kind of you 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 you, you, rest- you basically find yourself having to you know a river that the river that's been flowing that way all just have to find another way and and in a way it helps you to get out to get into an area where you're using words that actually really you know you can kind of mean it and you can i mean you have to set up a whole different whole whole different sentiment to get to the point you know
0: yeah, the classic thing is give yourself limitations and you become mm. a more creative person. And mm. I wanted to ask you about the title, too, before we move off of it, because it's, the title is a song that didn't make the record, and yeah. it's about your father, Didn't yeah. He Ramble. I wondered how much your father was a presence to you in your mind making the record. or I mean, I guess I'm asking if, if losing your dad,
1: if it put also puts you in a different place in the world in your mind... You know, it's funny, when my dad died, I was away on tour and I was devastated, but we had a very complicated relationship my family with my dad. My dad was a, you know, my dad was a drinker, he was a, he was kind of emotionally not so present, you know, the classic Irish dad, you know, just, just bless him, he just, he was shut down.
0: Well, Um, you said in the Swell Season documentary, you said your mother used to point to his inert, unconscious form on the couch and say, (laughs) Don't you ever turn into yeah, that?
1: Yeah, it was a it was a complicated childhood. I, I absolutely i, I uh, but i but i but I am conscious of doing my father justice because it's very easy in our lives to to look at our lives and go, I am the result of you know w- you know this kind of growing up or this you know. Then um, the truth is, what makes you who you are is how you deal with what you the cards you were dealt, if you like. And so my growing up was as much romantic and wonderful as it was complicated and violent and odd and you know stormy you know it was all those things and and my dad was was not a bad man he was a confused you know man and he was a he was a he was someone who was trying but couldn't figure it out and so in a way you know they say you choose your parents and all this but in a way my i never thought think what i'm saying is that when my father did die bless him and passed away of lung cancer and the very things you use to express, my dad didn't, didn't use them, and they eventually, they dried up and they killed him. You know, those very organs that are, that are to do with expression. And I was upset, and I was sad for my mother, because my mother and father loved each other. You know, despite all of the madness they, they experienced together. Um, but their love was a particularly kind, particular kind of love, and it was an old world love, my dad was a provider. My dad would go to work in every state, but he would go to work you know, and he brought home a wage. And that was his way of saying, I'll be who I am yeah. because I've paid my way. And again, paying my way is very much about my dad. I, mean, I didn't realize it, but I was writing an album about my dad and I didn't, had no idea until it was done. And I looked at all the songs and I was like, well, wow, there he is, he's in every song. You know, he he's showed up, you know, and I realized I'd written a tribute to my dad. My dad's favorite bar, the local bar, was called The Ramble Inn. Oh, really? Yeah, that was, and that was the bar where my dad spent much more of his time than he ever did with us. <laughs> um, um, and he used to joke and call it the ramble in and the stumble out. You know. <laughs> um, and as a child, I would be sent to that bar to go, go get your dad, tell him his dinner, you know, tell him this, tell him that. But I'd always have to go to this bar and I'd stand outside and I'd be afraid to go in because I'd go in and he'd be sitting there with his mates. And it, I, it wasn't my world. We weren't... You know, me entering that space was like some weird abstraction. It didn't make any sense, but I'd have to go into the bar and say, Dad, I knew he wasn't going to listen to me. Dad, Ma, I want you. You know, and that was really, yeah, yeah, Sony, yeah. I'll be, you know, tell her I'll be up in a minute. He never was, you know, it was, just, it was just, but I'd be sent down anyway several times. Sometimes I wouldn't even go in. I'd just go down and just come back and say, I'll yeah, be there in yeah, a minute. <laughs> He'll be back in a minute. Uh, uh, but my dad, the, the ramble in, and so I wanted to. I wanted to write a song for my father, which was a bit like standing up at a wake and saying, "Well, he lived his life. He did it his own way. He worked hard. He, you uh, know, he, well, he went, he, he went his own way, you know." Uh, and I wanted it to be an unemotional, uh, no blame. I, I, the last thing I wanted to do was blame my dad for any of my stuff. I just wanted to say, "Well, didn't he ramble?" And didn't he ramble was kind of a, a sort of an in joke because he did ramble. He rambled every day. He was in the pub every day, you know. Didn't he ramble, didn't he roam, didn't he wander so far from home? And didn't he go down in the dark for too long? And don't we look good now singing his song? My dad loved to sing. The two things he loved most in life were drinking and singing. He was, a, he was a, just adored singing, you know. And he was a very happy, my dad was a pleasant drunk. When he was out drinking with his friends, he was the life and soul. And so in a way, I wanted to sing to that, I also wanted to acknowledge what happened when he was dark, too. But I didn't, that wasn't necessary for me. I never, I didn't feel any anger towards him. I just felt, I felt in a way, you chose your, you know, if if everything we are right now, everything you are right now today, sitting here, is the result of every decision you've ever made. Here you sit, Sam Jones. This is you now. Because of every decision you've ever made, here you are. Yeah, Same with my dad, I just wanted to say that, that you made this choice, this choice, this choice, and here you are. So, you know, uh, uh, didn't he teach us and didn't we learn? Didn't he reach out beyond all return? Because my dad wasn't available, he wasn't there. You know, um, 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 uh, didn't he close down and take it all to the grave? Which he did, he never spoke, my dad was not a speaker. My dad had something in him that he wouldn't speak about. And he never spoke about it, it's gone. It dies with him, whatever it is, it dies with him. You know, take it all to the grave, uh, uh, and don't we fare well now with the choice that he made? Which is like, you know, I'm trying to keep as much as I can keep the emotion away from pointing a finger at him in any way, just reporting on who he was. But it meant more to me than any other song, and I couldn't finish it. Like it's almost like my dad speaking back and going, you know, don't turn into me, don't be, don't look at, you know, don't look to me for guidance. You're, you're the man who's going to take do your own. My dad was very proud of very proud of once and very proud my dad died after we had won the, the Oscar and he was so proud of it and, you know because he saw in a way all of his ambition as a young man as a boxer was being transferred onto me he got to see you reach your dream yeah he got to see someone and you know they and my dad just always say you know the two most ripped off people in the world are boxers and musicians you're a believe musician I'm a boxer you know, and I was like, what "What, what is it?" He said, because they just want to get in the ring and fight. They don't care about the contracts. They don't care about the legalities. Isn't that They true? just want to fight. <laughs> and it's so true. You know, they just want to get. We'll do Anton to get up and on And musicians stage. just want to play. That get so they- me on the stage, and I'll do me thing. You know, um, but he was so proud of me. He was so proud, and I wanted to sing him that song. It didn't make the record because I couldn't finish it, and it was almost like I was never going to finish it. And I didn't finish it actually. It was never, it was never a fitting tribute, but it is a tribute. I have to talk about once,
0: and f- you know for anyone who's been living under a rock, mm-hmm. once is a film you made, what seven or eight years ago now yeah. it's the story of an Irish street busking musician who wants to make a record, and yeah. he meets a woman on the streets who she sells flowers and as i 'm hearing, hearing your story i 'm even thinking, gosh your mo- your mother sold vegetables in, the, in on the street, and yeah there's all these um, parallels parallels, yes, but um uh, and and her name is Marketa Irklova, and um, and you guys made this beautiful film, and it ended up winning best song at the Oscars, and turned into sort of a, a tour and a and a band, and you went on tour with her, and and it's been this amazing journey for you, and it's one of those films that kind of came out of nowhere and took everyone by surprise, and. A couple scenes really struck me. The scene with uh, the man who plays your father, mm-hmm. Bill Hodnett. You sit him down, and you play him your completed demos. And you play him the demos all the way through on this crappy little tape recorder. And it finishes, and then he has this reaction that I'm sure every son, that's all they want out of their father. And it's, and it's yeah. this moment, and it just destroys me emotionally every time. It got me again when I saw the film. And, and he has this response he likes the music for the right reasons and he understands it and he thinks it's great and he wants his son to do well and and it's just this scene of love mm-hmm. and I, I couldn't help
1: wondering does that connect to your life at all you know it's it's interesting you know i don't that scene is, is that you know that is movie magic you know the the guy gets to play the music to his dad and his dad responds well it's a fairy tale yeah i don't know if i've ever had that i know i haven't had that experience with my own dad. My mother would be much more generous. My mother would say, I like that song, now what's that? What's that about now? My dad would be like, oh, fun, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, and he'd say something like, oh, do you want a cup of tea? And that meant, I love the record. I love what you're doing. I'm proud of your son. You know, that meant everything. Just that simple, do you want a cup of tea? it really i mean that sounds that's but i would read so far into that because it was such a rare thing uh. for him to ask that question or to that actually you learn how to we learn how to read our our our, our, our parents or our siblings in a way that where it's a, it's, a, it's a body language or it's a sing that one you know do that one you know off your record you know and, and you just go holy shit he's listened to my record <laughs> you know he has because you know I, I don't think my dad ever really had any real connection with anything I did artistically but I know that he was aware that I was doing it and he was really happy I was doing it yeah you know and, and I remember my dad at the premiere of once in Dublin uh, you know saying out loud in the theatre that's not his real dad I'm his dad you know <laughs> really? and it's funny because when he saw that scene he wouldn't have no, that's never how he would have done it, you know. Right. But, but he did acknowledge it, and he went well, it. It's a powerful scene. And just so I understand the
0: chronology of that, your role was supposed to be played by Killian Murphy. Yeah. Correct? And yes. And
1: you were writing songs for the film. Yes. I know John Carney, the director and writer, had always talked to me about it, this idea, this film called Busker. And he always said, if I ever make it, will you write the songs? And I was like, I would be, you know, it would be amazing for me to write songs. And he had Killian listed to do this Busker project. And he was looking for a girl to fit the, the you know, he was looking for an older woman than the guy who was kind of, you know, uh, you, know you know and basically he said she needs to play the piano, she needs to be Eastern European and I knew Marquetta's family. And I said, I know somebody who plays piano and speaks in that accent, but she's only seventeen And he said, Let me, let's let's can we, you know, can we can we meet her? So I got her and they met. And so Marquetta and Killian were going to be two characters and Killian said he he, for some reason he couldn't do it and the whole project was was, you know and it had a budget it had like some money in it. you know they were going to make it for a few million dollars but yeah something like I think maybe one million but they were going to make it for a decent amount of money but basically when Killian for some reason wasn't in the project anymore so suddenly the money wasn't in the project anymore everything it kind of went in the air and in a way, John was really, really upset. And I was upset because my songs weren't going to get used. And, you know, but that's, that's life, you know. We learn how to live with these things. And then John came to me a couple of weeks later and said, you know what, it's been kind of in front of me all the way. And I, don't, I can't believe I didn't see this, but you, you've got to be the guy. And I was like, oh, man, I, really, like, I was really against doing it because I was too close to my own story. And, you know, like all the bank managers saying my own mother had put the... You know, had kind of gone to the bank manager and got money for us to make our first demo in the same studio. That's where he sort of took your story to write the script. In a way, there was there was that, but the relationship with the girl—that was something he had experienced in his own life. So that was completely not out of, you know, not out of my life at the time. Yeah. <laughs> because of funny is yeah. now how art and everything imitates and you know. Well, yes, you guys ended up having a relationship, yeah, which was which was which was wonderful and and you know. It is what it is. It is it was, what it, it was what it was. Was what it was. Amazing. But I said, look, do me a p- please. I, I'm not an actor, so audition me. And if I'm a bad actor, will you please tell me? Because I don't. You know, I was in the frames and things were kind of. You know, things were good. I was in a good spot with my band, and I just right. didn't want to make a bad film. I didn't want to make a film for my friend with my friend, and for it to be for it to be a terrible actor and. For it to be like, oh God, what did mean. you know? I was just really nervous about, you know, messing it up on him. Yeah, yeah. And so he said, "I'll tell you, I'll tell you if you're a bad actor." I'll, I, I said, "Just, just please be really hard on me because I don't know how, you know, it's not my area." So we we started shooting the film. We decided we would do it for zero money, for the lowest budget we could get away with. Everyone on the, the crew, fair play to everybody, worked for nothing.
0: Well, whatever you guys did, I mean, obviously, knowing those limitations or maybe maybe, you know, believing those limitations, even though yeah. maybe they weren't true, mm. you did create a very naturalistic performance. And, you know, that scene in the music store, the first time you guys play that song, is the closest a non-musician will ever get to feeling what it feels like to write a song or to or to discover. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. maybe that's me as a musician saying that, but, but it, it's, I think that's one of the most moving scenes in any film and, and uh, clearly that song became something very large and 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 carried this whole other monster of a you know it, it turned into a musical it turned into an academy award all that stuff but and john, did you know you had something special there
1: well john was very specific about that scene he like that was the central scene of the film for him yeah john was like i want to see you two first of all meet but i want to see you connect through harmony through music in that moment and it was very easy for us because we had only just the song wasn't that old at that point. So the, well, that's so, the
0: thing. It feels so first time.
1: Yeah. So we were, so we were kind of reliving the moment when I would have played the song to Mar, and she would have kind of answered it with a piano line, and so it all felt very natural to do that. And then that harmony she sang that was the magic. That was the moment where we were like, that's the that inspired us to finish. And John wanted to capture that moment in the in that scene, and and in a way. The scene was very, very simple, and it worked out. It's funny, actually, that there was a... <laughs> afterwards, that shop, that shop's Walton's. It's Walton's shop in Dublin. It's a music shop. And the guys let us shoot there. Thankfully, they let us shoot there, and we just went in, and we spent an afternoon in the shop shooting that scene, and we left. But, of course, after the film was, was, came out and, and you know, had a life, people would come to the shop, and I heard later on that that same piano... The guy had sold it four times. As then he'd sold the piano to someone who bought it because of the film. Because it's the same piano, we just used whatever piano was there. Right. And so he sold the piano to someone and then ordered the same piano, put it back in the same spot, so sold again. it again, and then put it <laughs> back in the same spot and sold it again. And but at the same time, the cheek of him, he he wouldn't let people play Falling Slowly in this in the shop. Because people were coming. And sitting at the piano and playing that song, he's like, you can't play that song in here. So it was like that classic Irish thing of like, you know, oh yeah, that's the piano. You can boil it if you want. You know, you can't play that You can't play that song because I'm so sick of it. So it was just like, ah, you know, so frustrating, but I get it, you know. Well, you think
0: about what that scene, and what that film spawned. I mean, there was a documentary called The Swell Season about the subsequent tour. And mm-hmm. what is, what's so amazing about it is that you see these fans coming, to the shows, and it's like that thing where, you know, the whole idea of a film is that it's a fantasy. Yet somehow that fantasy became real. In the film, you obviously hold back very much and you don't have a Hollywood, traditional storybook ending. Yeah. But then you guys end up on the road having this tour and you have this ending, in a way, and, and people can't believe that this thing has come to life and it's real, and it's almost like this Bob Dylan Joan Baez moment where, uh, you know, you're going out to these giant crowds and and they're just, they're as much captivated by the real life romance and the, the connection mm-hmm. continuing from the film. In other words, life did imitate art. Yeah, yeah. But I always wondered what that felt like from your perspective of when a song gets so big or when an idea gets so big that you don't have any power to stop it anymore and it ends up, it ends up sort of taking over your life in a way. I mean, it must have felt like that to you.
1: Yeah, it, it it did. It was it was also kind of overwhelming because I was really interested in the idea of what happens when you're given everything you ever wanted. Because I knew there was I knew there was risk. Yeah. And the way I got what I wanted, and so I can't watch the documentary because it's too close to me. So, but I, I was really fascinated what happens to people when they're given everything they've ever wanted because it, it, it's never simple. It's never as simple as, like, well done, you know, good on you, you know. It was, it was it, you know, it's complicated. And what happened to me and Mara as friends? Now, thankfully, thank God, we've remained friends. But at that time, we were just struggling and we were just at such odds with each other. Because Marquetta never asked for any of it. Yeah. She got involved in a film with her friend in Dublin who asked her to be involved. She came to Dublin for a couple of months and she filmed this thing. And she was delighted and she loved mu- playing music with me and we played music together and it was great. But then when it, when it was done, she was kind of like, okay, I'm gonna go home now. You know, and I was like, well actually, would you come and do this press run for the film? And you know, and myself and Mar and John were kind of thrown into this cycle of doing this. And I was kind of fascinated by what was, I was kind of fascinated by what was happening to us all. And in a way, the idea of documenting that and Marketo wasn't into it. She was like, I don't know, I'm not really into it, but if you want to. This is your thing. Marquetta always took that position of this is your thing. Swell season's your thing. Like, I'm in your band. I'm, and she very much, was, very much was similar to the character in the film, as in like, I'll do this for you. you know. But I will disappear, I, and I, I have my own path, and it's not this one. This, I'm serving you for a while. It was a, it was a powerful, powerful time in our lives and very confusing, and somehow I, my instinct was we need to mark it, we need to document it. And what we're left with is that film which I find very difficult to watch because it, it was a hard time for me. I was drinking a lot and I was going through a lot of pain with my dad and, you know, and me and Mar were falling apart. And it was like, it was a hard time. We were touring and yet every night there was just amazing sense of like victory with the film and we as friends were just drifting. And it was like, ah, oh, you've been since age 14, trying to get to the point
0: where you have a reverential <laughs> audience of people <laughs> that will applaud right when you walk out before you've even played a song. And <laughs> she comes in and says, well, why would... Because, because she hadn't worked her whole life for it, and she probably didn't understand how, how many steps
1: she'd skipped over. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in a way. And, but she was But she was so incredibly incisive. And, you know, she'd listen to a song of mine and go, that, why, why are you singing that? Like, that's not true. And I'd say, you know, well, you're right, it's not true, but it's kind of poetic, you know, licenser.'" She'd be like, "Why would you? Why would you? Why would you sing about something that didn't happen?" And there was something so refreshing about someone challenging you on that very basic level. It's funny. I, th- I feel like in the film, you can see her
0: holding a mirror up to you a little bit, and you're yeah. almost a bit surprised that someone this young could sort of make you look at yourself, look right at you. Yeah, tell yeah. you and tell you who you are. I imagine that experience had to be overwhelming. You know, you've said that that film made you, you know, it made you quite a bit of money and, and that song obviously went on to spawn this musical on Broadway and everything yeah. that, does it ever feel like you write a song like that and it becomes so much bigger than you and so much bigger than any of us and it just becomes
1: a thing out there? I guess what I'm asking is, is there pressure to... Write it again? Yeah. No, not at all. And, and the thing is that, the, that you write a song and you, you, you have no idea whether it's... A song that will have a life or a song that won't, you don't know, you never know. And so when we when we wrote that song, I remember feeling proud of it. I do remember feeling like this is good, I like this. But it is interesting, this idea that our our ambition, our will, you know, ambition's a kind of a dirty word, you know, but it's not. It's absolutely fine. We all want to succeed. You know, what is success? When I play my song to someone and they hear it, and it lands, and I and it lands in them, and then someone goes, I like that that's interesting you can like it or you can not like it but you can't deny it that's in a way really achieving something is when you go well that's a decent piece of work whereas what happened with Once which was so wonderful because it was such a the film was never made for the heights it reached it was never those heights were never even contemplated and yet it kind of had this whole life of its own. And you realize that one's success or one's, once you set something in motion, you literally have no control over its trajectory. You fire that arrow and it's, and you don't know where it's gonna hit. It just happened to hit a bullseye somewhere. But the arrow has long gone out of our sights before it had ever, you know, we didn't get to control the trajectory, the wind blowing, you know, it just, it, it went its own direction and, and in a way, once and everything that happened subsequently like the musical and everything else was like it was all out of our hands it was like our film remains intact it was a simple thing we did over three weeks in dublin in the summer of 2006 that's all we did but then when it went on broadway and and then they got involved and of course we resisted the idea and was like please don't do it you know what what are you thinking you can't put that film on stage it's nothing nothing happens in it just you know it's very very it was very minimal and and fair play, true, true, some kind of resistance, and true, true, us not wanting it to happen. They ended up getting really good people involved. And Enda Walsh, I remember sitting with Ender Walsh and John Tiffany, and Ender was Enda's a great playwright in Ireland, very, very acerbic writer, and you know, powerful. He was like, Then, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing, but I promise you, I'm not going to fuck it up." So, what it became on the stage version, I could go and see and not feel any sort of like. Oh my God, look what they've done. You know, it felt actually really good, right. You know, and really interesting. And and then that generated money for everybody. And that was a whole that was a whole sort of gift out of the blue. It was like, oh my God, look at that. You know. And then of course money is a money is energy. You put the work in and then some part of you is like, man, I, I you know, do I deserve this? And then another part of me is like, you've been working for twenty-five years, you this might be you know, because as an artist, it's a funny thing you work for nothing you work for nothing you work for nothing you work you know yeah. it's one of the few professions where you don't get paid for decades and then suddenly you're making more money than you ever thought you'd make but it almost seems unfair because suddenly it's like all coming out of the blue and you don't based on one thing but it's not based on one
0: thing it was it was on. On, exactly it's a great line or a marker in the sand of when you create art mm-hmm. that's not meant for commercial purposes but from purity of spirit and almost i almost think that you losing or 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 john losing the uh financing for the film and having to do it cheap that was probably the best thing that could have ever happened to that because you get to then it's that fragile situation where you get to make real art because
1: you're just making it for you i was in a band rock band frames for so long right and loved my band and it was us against the world and it was like you know, and I had an idea in my head of how I wanted things to go forward. It was me and my band, and, and it was a funny thing, and I, and I don't really know why I'm saying this, but maybe it'll touch someone or spark off something in someone's mind, but it was only when, in a way, members of the frames began to leave at different points. And it was only, in a way, when I when I myself began to potentially not believe in the band as much as I did before. It was only when that moment of doubt came in, because otherwise it was just like, you know, we're doing it, it's me, us, me and the lads, you know, we're. Right. But it was only when that bit of doubt came in and I was like, maybe this isn't. You know, I was 35 years old, it was like, and we were still playing for the very, very small crowds where, you know, and in Ireland things were great and certain cities in the world, people, things were, but like, we're still, it was like, how long is this going to take? And it was only when that really creeped in, I thought, maybe this isn't the way I'm gonna, my career is going to unfold, that when that little bit of doubt came in, enough space happened in that moment for other avenues to open, i.e. John saying to me, do you want to do this film? And I probably wouldn't have dreamt of doing that film with him when I was really focused on. And then when I followed through on those other avenues, green lights open doors green lights open like suddenly things were like boom i was like what's going on and then one, once was like the. And what i'm trying to say in a, in a way i guess is that we cannot dictate the form of our success we can't we we can kind of decide on an a, on a trajectory but if we hold on too tight to that idea like that
0: vision of what it's supposed to be
1: yeah of, of the the result of the result exactly that when we hold on too tightly to that idea, we might be missing opportunities left, right, and center that are, that are all there to guide us through to our goal. So I would, if you'd ask me when I was 25, you know, uh, so maybe it'll be a film that you'll do when you're 35 that'll, I'd be like, not a chance, man, no way. What I mean is you don't see the trajectory of, your, of one's career unless you kind of stay a little bit open. And all I'm saying is when we grip too tightly to our idea of our career, we are closing off. We are, we are a closed door. And the, 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 the ether can't communicate with a closed door. God, that is a great lesson.
0: It really, I mean, when you think about it, it you can spend years mm. with some picture in your head of what you're supposed to be. Yeah. And if you're not careful, that will define you. That's, that's
1: exactly my point, yeah. Do you think you almost missed that chance? Very, very nearly. And the moment I let go of it, I was caught. And brought to something much bigger, straight away. And, and so in a way, it's in a way, it's it's a big risk. But sometimes letting go of a of a of a, a, a dogma or letting go of a of a, of, a, of a very strict idea of who you are can sometimes lead you to who you really are.
0: It brings you back to your childhood and your parents letting you sort of kind of kind of write your own future.
1: Yeah, I think, and I think my parents. I think I was lucky at my my parents had never finished any formal education. We were, you know, it was working class Dublin family. My folks, in a way, were kind of like, if you've got some ideas of how to do this any other way than the way, the only way we see open for you, which is to work in the supermarket, pushing trolleys around, or stacking boxes, or you know, working with your uncle as a mechanic, or whatever it ends up being. If you've got any other way that's more creative than that, be my guest. Go for it, because. I don't think anyone in my family were were pushing me towards college. Anyway, I mean, I don't. I think once I I got my basic wasn't an answered family tree to end up at Oxford. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So in a way, though, that was never, you know, us being at school was as much us being out of the house. While giving my ma a few hours in the daytime, see, I I still can't figure out if, if she was liberal or kind of was just too busy. (laughs) <laughs> with, her, with her own, but you know, my mother showed great, great, she gave her kids great freedom. And so in a way, I think my mother's version of raising us and my dad's in, in his way was actually kind of beautiful and kind of smart. They let their kids be who they are and they had to figure out who they were for themselves. You know.
0: Well, and you, and you did and, and you decided to go after something and, and chase it and uh, you worked really hard and you hustled and, and and you know, I mean, I'm going to use a phrase that's not from my culture, but fair play to you. <laughs> thank you. Thanks, Sam. That's brilliant. Fair play to you. And uh, thanks for coming and doing this. Thank you. I uh, really uh, enjoyed it. Yeah, well, I. you know, hopefully we can continue our conversation really off camera for many years to come. I love talking to you. So thank you. Thanks, Sam.